Welcome to I Hate It Here, the podcast for HR and people professionals, making the hardest job in the world just a little bit easier. I'm Hibi Youssef. We rescue people from their responsibilities. We take care of people's responsibilities. Later, we get mad at them for what we've done. Then we feel used and sorry for ourselves. That is the pattern, the triangle. So here is the list of acts that constitute rescuing or caretaking. Doing something we really don't want to do. Saying yes when we mean no. Doing something for someone, although that person is capable and should be doing it for him or herself. Meeting people's needs without being asked and before we've agreed to do so. Doing more than a fair share of work after our help is requested. Consistently giving more than we receive. Speaking for someone else. Putting more interest into a joint effort than the other person. And not asking for what we want, need, and desire. Did you just Uh describe HR to me? (laughs) (laughs) No, I was reading from the book Codependent No More by Melody Beattie. Go check it out. Are you struggling to prove the value of your performance management programs to your executive team? You need 15.5. 15.5's easy-to-use software enables HR leaders to continuously measure the impact of performance to drive business results. Visit 15.5.com demo to schedule a demo today. Welcome back to another episode of the I Hated Here podcast, all about workplace cultures. I'm your host, Tiba Youssef, and joining me today is a friend and another person I greatly admire, Rodney Evans. Hey, I'm Rodney Evans. I am an organizational designer at The Ready, which is a future of work consultancy. I also co-host a podcast called Brave New Work. I'm so happy. I think this is what, like our fourth attempt to do this? Yes. Uh, Today's the day, my lady. It's going to happen. All right. It's happening. We're doing it today. A few months ago, I joined Rodney on her podcast, Brave New Work, and I was determined to have her join me on I Hate It Here, so I'm so glad that I finally made it happen. Yeah, me too. It's going to be a good one. So we're going to get into today's episode, but before we do, I'd like to ask every single person who joins me, uh, what is their one HR hot take? This one's recent. Y'all, if it doesn't change, it's not going to be a thing. Okay, tell me more. Like, I just think if HR doesn't actually take the evolution game seriously, it's just going to become a non-function. It will be ultimately disbanded, I believe, if it doesn't change into the thing that HR people know it should be. Wow. Evolve or die. It's an evolve or die situation for HR. Are we dinosaurs? Like, are they trying to... I mean, not know. (laughs) That's it's honestly very true. It's very true. We've seen okay, but we've seen like of all the of all the things you've seen, would you say the average HR team is open to that evolution or not open to the evolution? Not open. Why? Change is good. It's healthy. Welcome to my TED Talk. Look, I think that HR is sort of designed from the ground up to not be evolutionary. I don't actually blame the people who are in the organizations for having the wrong mindset. I think it's quite difficult to change your mindset when you are in the role you're in. And like, you know, you can kind of think of it as like, if you imagine HR to be like a first responder or like the firefighter of an organization, it's very difficult to stop and go like, how do we build fireproof buildings when we're putting out fires all day? You're just like in the crumbling stairwell being like, we gotta put out Exit. this fire. Exit the elevator. Elevator. Get the, we gotta get the people out of here, you know? Like, it's really hard to take a step back and be like, why do all these buildings burn down all the time? But that is the shift that has got to happen. 
Oh, I love it. And it leads so perfectly into what I want to talk to you about today, our role, HR's role in an organization. And so in, in a metaphorical sense, HR is often referred to as the mom of the organization. And we've, we've chatted about this briefly, like this caregiver role that we take on as the HR team. How have you seen that manifest? Look, I have a lot thoughts and like I have a lot of my own baggage and history around this. Full disclosure, I am neither a mom nor a therapist. So we'll just say that top of the hour here. But what I see happen a lot is that there is a ton of emotional labor that is held by HR that is not seen. It is not compensated. It is not well respected. And there are a lot of like people in charge. I'm thinking I'm looking at CEOs and CEOs who don't think that that emotional labor should be necessary, don't want to do it themselves, and both outsource it to HR, sometimes explicitly and sometimes implicitly, and also devalue it. And so I think HR gets caught in this sort of rescuer, caretaker role that is really, really unhealthy. It's unhealthy for the people in the role, and it's ultimately quite unhealthy for the organization too. Yeah, it makes me, I feel like I'm being put on blast right now because I, I try to explain the like the tiredness in my bones that comes <sighs> from doing this job. Yes. And I just don't think people understand it. And then I feel like I'm a broken record when I say like, do you all understand how like emotionally taxing this job is where like I sometimes don't feel like I can give my full self in my personal life because I'm so tired from my professional life. Totally. I mean, I think that is a very common feeling. And I also don't think that anybody is going to solve that problem for HR. No one is going to take up the mantle of like, y'all shouldn't have to clean up this mess that I made or y'all shouldn't have to have this really hard conversation that I don't want to have or y'all shouldn't have to worry about this thing because I'm emotionally incapable of worrying about about it myself. Like no one's going to do that for you. No one is going to be like, no, no, you let me. So it's like if if HR pros are not going to like really think about what those clear boundaries look like and the way that that role has to change and what we have to be able to say no to, it won't change. Like it just won't because someone else isn't going to do that work because it would be really inconvenient. Like, you know, look at all of the statistics about like, how, like, for example, how moms are in the home space about all of the late, all of the unseen labor that happens, the dozens of hours of week that go basically unaccounted for. It's very rare for the other partner to be like, you know what? I feel like you're not being properly recognized and the division of this emotional labor is out of balance. Let's recontract around that. Like, let's not wait for that day because it's like probably not coming. That's such a good point. I feel like a lot of HR people listening probably are this is relating. They're relating to this very much so. But then it begs the bigger question, like I can say no all I want. But what if my CEO partner or COO partner or founder partner, whatever, what if they don't seem to respect the no? that is being said. I think this is where these things always get messy, right? And we're inevitably going to talk about codependence today because this is like a deep hole that I've been in recently is really understanding the codependency literature. And frankly, I just think that like there's a lot of codependent behavior that I see in HR, this like rescuing, caretaking, taking responsibility for what is not yours, what is not ours, taking responsibility for other people's business 
The thing that gets really tricky in that dynamic is that it can feel like letting someone else fail is failure ourselves. And I deeply, personally, and in a very profound way, understand that feeling of like me being clear and boundaried around this no and letting the chips fall where they may is going to have negative consequences for me personally. And therefore, I really don't want to. And but the more you feed the dynamic, the bigger the dynamic gets. So every time you rescue, every time you go, it's not worth it for me to hold the line and let them fail and deal with the whatever, you are reinforcing a dynamic that you are there to save and that you will always be there with a net or a mop and that other people aren't fully accountable for their behavior. Oh my God. I feel like oh I'm actually God. feel like I'm actually in therapy right now. <laughs> I'm like, I mean, you know, welcome to my life. My dude. I'm, gonna start, I'm gonna start crying after this. No, but like I feel that very deeply because I do feel like some days I am the savior. Like I have to swoop yeah. in and like stop the manager from giving bad feedback, which then leads the employee to quit. And I feel like it's all on my shoulders. And then I have a hard time letting the person fail because my thought is, okay, if that person fails, they upset the employee, the employee then leaves. Now I have to basically bear all the burden of backfilling the person, helping support the rest of the team, coaching people through transitions and doing so much more work. So sometimes I jump in to save so that the thing that I think will happen doesn't actually happen. I think this is basically the way that the job has gotten crafted and has evolved over the decades. So like, I really don't think that you're alone in that. But what I see a lot, have you ever read um, or like heard about the 15 commitments of conscious leadership? I think you told yeah, me you know those guys. time. <laughs> okay, so it's great. Anyway, there's this, there's this thing that is talked about in that book called the drama triangle. And it's basically this idea that like when we are in a reactive state, we swing between three roles. And those three roles are hero, victim, and villain. And I see HR wear those hats a lot, where it's like, I will be the savior. And then when I can't save, I'm like, oh, like this is all on me. And I am the resentful victim martyr person here. And then I start to get like mad. And that's where, I mean, when I was in HR personally, like I probably was the villain more often than I should have been, where I would be like, well, how can I regain control of this situation? And I didn't always do that in the healthiest way. But like, we got to get out of the drama triangle because it we think that we're lessening the drama in the system and actually we're creating more drama in the system. But then I feel like a lot of HR people, the joke is like, oh, I went into HR because I love the tea. I love the drama. So are we just like a never ending self-fulfilling prophecy? Maybe. I don't know. I don't think so. (laughs) Look, I think here's the thing about gossip and like the drama. First of all, I think anyone who says that like they went into a job because they love the drama should probably take a look at what's underneath that. And like, what is it about being included in secrets or feeling like you belong or feeling like you know things that other people don't know what about that is so appealing to you that you like made it your work identity because like there might be something to unpack in that 
Uh-huh. Um, you know, maybe. Maybe a little therapy. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I've done a shitload of it. Doesn't, I don't think it hurts anybody who's in a helping profession to also be getting some help themselves to understand the dynamics that they bring to a system or a group of people. It's funny because we've debated this at times at The Ready, which is the company I work at, about like gossip and, you know, when it's okay and when it's not okay and whether it's toxic, et cetera. And where I've kind of landed on this is like, I think to be human is to gossip, actually. Like, I don't think that there is a way around it. I think that it can be quite healthy because effectively what gossip is doing, if you look at literature around like early tribes, what gossip is effectively doing is establishing rules. So it's like mm. you and I, when I bring you a piece of gossip, what I'm really doing is saying, hey, but this is the behavior that's unacceptable to me. It's not really about that. It's about me clarifying mm-hmm. with you what I think is okay and how I want to be treated. So I don't think on its face it's necessarily bad. What I think is bad is when cycles of gossip never turn into anything. Mm. Like, you know, I've been a business partner. I've been a chief people officer. We've all been in the role where every week somebody comes with the same ax to grind. And it's just like, I want to talk shit about Margot. And it's like, are we going anywhere with this? Or is this just like rinse and repeat? And I go... I'm really sorry that that's happening to you. What have you said? What have you tried? What's the conversation you want? Blah, blah, blah. I'm doing my coaching. And then next week is just, you know, we take it from the top. That's where I think it's really unproductive and where it starts to seep into the system and poison it. Yeah, but what if the thing they're complaining about, like, you should change, but you don't have the power to change? Give me an example. Oh, I love this. A little bit of role playing on the podcast. Okay, let's, let's say let's say someone comes to HR with a situation with an employee and the employee is a jerk to other people. They're consistently a jerk to other people. And the managers tried intervening. It's just not happening. So now they come to HR and they're like, why do we keep this person here who is a jerk? But you like need that person. Usually it's a person in sales. I've seen this situation happen time and time again. You have a brilliant seller who's an utter asshole, but you can't get rid of them because they generate revenue. Yep. And so what if that that gossip is less gossip and more like, I, literally, you need to get rid of this person. I'm going to keep complaining every week. But you as HR can't say, I, I have to go get rid of that person because they're going to bring in revenue for our company. So I think as the HR person, you have two options in that situation. I think one option is if you agree with that employee and the manager, it sounds like, is also in agreement, then I do think there's a conversation with whoever has the decision rights to fire someone to say, are we willing to make the trade-off of this revenue even over our organization's culture? Yep. I can't personally make that decision, so somebody else needs to. If it was my decision to make, I'd say no. But if you guys want to make that trade-off, fine. But let's be clear that that's what we're doing. And if that is how it breaks, that's what I say to an employee. I'm like, look, bro, I hear you. I also think that guy's an asshole. And we need the money. And I've had the conversation and the trade-off that was chosen is the money. Even over the behavior. I can't talk to you about this anymore. There's nothing else I can do. And that's where the boundaries come into play, where it's like, We can't keep having this conversation because there's nowhere else for it to go. If there was a decision point, that decision has been made. And the decision we made was money even over culture. 
If that means that you can't stay here, that seems very understandable to me. Ooh, I wonder how people are going to react to hearing that because I also feel the same way or I'm like, I might as well just tell them like, I can't, I can't make this. Some decisions are outside my control. That's, yeah. that's the other interesting thing about HR when employees come to me and they're like, you made this decision and I want to be like, probably not. I probably gave guidance to actually make the opposite decision, but like, it's not my company. So I get vetoed sometimes, right? Like if it were my company, I would, maybe I would do it differently. I feel like every HR person listening to this probably thinks to themselves on a weekly basis, I wouldn't do it that way. Of course. But sometimes we have to like, we also don't have final say, so we should just see to the person who does. But then I think the flip side is like a lot of HR people don't want to say, oh, well, the CEO made that decision. Or, oh, well, you're managed. Because we feel this like insane pressure to take accountability for everyone else. Exactly what we were just talking about. Yeah. We are seen often as we think it's better to be seen. I don't want to speak like in generalizations, but I do think a lot of HR people think it's better to that we are the villain than like a CEO or someone else, even though I bet you the employees see right through it. I think this is such an important point because I used to sit in much the same like I took the same position that you're talking about. The, but here's the downside. One is the employees already know that 100%. you don't have the final call. So when you sit there and like salute the flag, they know you're full of shit, which hurts your credibility. Two is you're a safe place for them to come and like vomit all of the things that they disagree with. And then either... You like pat them on the head and they go away, which is patronizing and also ineffective. Or you go and try to influence the person who actually did make the decision. And what happens in that situation is that that person is now shielded by you from the real story and the real emotion out in the field. So you are not putting that, call it the CEO, in the seat to get the real data, get the real feedback from the population of how their behavior is being felt or heard or interpreted. And this is this is the cycle that we're talking about. You are taking responsibility for someone else's thoughts, feelings, or behavior. And as a result, this case, the CEO, and as a result, that CEO will continue to be less accountable for their own thoughts, feelings, and behavior. Because why should they be? They don't have to feel the pain. They're not taking the phone call. You are. Oh, this is such a good point. Yeah. And look, it's hard. It, the other thing is, and here's like the shift that's underneath that, that's like really important. And that frankly, I couldn't see until I was out of the role. I couldn't see this when I was still sitting in the seat with a CEO side by side. I felt, I will not speak for any other HR people, but I used to feel like a lot of my reputational value in the system was being seen as someone who had the CEO's ear, who could influence him, and who did kind of, I don't want to say toe the line, but like those things get wrapped up together because to me it felt like if I didn't toe the line, I wouldn't have that trusting relationship and he wouldn't necessarily consider me like his confidant and his advisor anymore. I, I put those two things together where I was like, I am only going to be in this sort of privileged position with him if I toe the line. And what that prevented me from doing was holding him accountable to his behavior when it was shit and actually becoming a strategic 
leader myself because I was mostly just seen as somebody who could manipulate somebody else really effectively. Mm. And like, yuck, as a job, yuck. It does feel like a lot of our job, I mean, at its very core, influencing is a sense or a type of manipulation. It is. 100%. And I like, I always, I joke about this very openly. I'm like, if I was an evil person, I would manipulate for bad. But I am a good person, so I try to manipulate for good. Meaning like, I'm going to try to influence anybody to be more empathetic to the employee experience and what the employees want. Like, that's how I use my power. But it can be very dark very quickly where suddenly yeah. you find yourself spending most of your day just being a political person in an organization. And I find that very interesting because I don't love the drama. I'm the person who will just tell you to your face. Like, I'm not going to go gossip about you because I'm going to be like, here's how I feel about you to your face. It's been really hard in HR. Can't really do that very often. But the other piece of like the drama and the gossip is like this role of the politician in any organization. And so we're finding that like we're gravitating towards the drama, the secrets, and then we're also playing a politician role. And not to mention, we're also the mom of the organization. So we're doing all of these like very emotionally taxing roles just to make workplaces better. It feels like that's what the job has become. And it's it's really, it's tough because I don't want to, I just want to do good work and make workplaces better. And my question is for the people listening who are like, yeah, that is a job that like Bermuda Triangle of behaviors. <laughs> I'm like, is that making the workplace better? It doesn't feel is, like, like it. influencing and politicking and triaging people's emotions actually making the culture better? My guess is not in most cases. And so I think not. And I also think all of those kinds of behaviors tend to be self-reinforcing it's like the more emotional labor we do the more need there will be the more politicking we do the more politics there will be the more influence i i was in a project this is funny a couple of years ago i was doing this project and so what what i do for a living is actually like organizational design we look at the system level of companies and try to help them with their ways of working so that they end up with the culture that they want so we don't go in and say, here's what your culture should be. We go in and say, you know, what are we designing for? And then we look at the actual operating system to be like, well, what's your strategy? And how do you do resourcing? And how do you do hiring? And how do you make decisions? And how do you have meetings? Stuff like that. Because like all of that stuff leads up to culture. Here's my point. I was working with a big pharma company a couple of years ago. And they were deciding between working with us on doing system change and doing this gigantic and very expensive training program around influencing for their project managers. Sure. And I was like, anytime the word influence is in the mix here, it is a bandage for something that has gone wrong in the system. If it is anybody's job to be influencing anybody else, you have system work that you should be doing instead. Yep. So like, I think to the extent that HR gets caught up in that, it's like, what is underneath that that's broken in the system when you're doing influencing? And it's usually authority. Usually we're influencing because the decision rights are not clarified or they're in the wrong place. 
It's easy for employee engagement initiatives to fall flat when your leadership team doesn't understand the business impact. Don't let that happen in your organization. 15.5 is the performance management platform that helps HR leaders connect employee engagement back to business results. 15.5 makes it easy to collect employee feedback, find insights, and decide where to focus your engagement strategy for maximum impact. Visit 15.5.com slash demo to schedule a demo today. If I had a dollar for every time I ask somebody who has the final decision-making rights here, I would not do this job because I would have already made billions because I literally ask that question all the time. I even asked it recently where I was like, can we just have a decision matrix? Literally, I just need two columns. What the decision is, who needs to be notified, who has final say. Yeah. And if, if people could just learn to do that and even put it in JDs to say like this role has decision-making power over X, Y, and Z, a lot of the little silly things we do all day long would potentially disappear and you could actually focus on doing the work that makes cultures better. 100%. And like in our company and in projects that we do, this is one of the shifts that always happens is we go from monolithic job description to something that looks like a role description and it has a very small number of sections. Purpose of the role. And I do mean purpose of the role, like why do we have this job here? (laughs) Three to five accountabilities, attendant decision rights. So what are the decision rights that you need to hold to deliver those accountabilities? Because if you have an accountability for a world-class compensation system and you don't have the authority to change the compensation system, that's fucking dumb. I'm laughing because I'm feeling really seen right now. <laughs> but it's but so you know true. What I mean, it's yeah. so true. So what you're supposed to go do all the research and come up with all the models and then bring it to a bunch of meetings where people say no, no thanks. Yeah, I would. I wouldn't want to do that either. But that is that is how I feel like most corporations are run. Oh yeah, this is why HR has to adapt or die. Adapt or die. You heard it here first. Sorry, I, I don't know. know. But here's the thing, Hibbet, is like, again, I don't think HR people, I don't think people who are drawn to this job want it to be this way. You know, HR business partners self-report the highest rate of burnout of like any corporate job that there is. So it's like, I don't think we're all out there thriving and being like, this is what I dreamed of. You know, no, we hate it. Why do you think I hate it here is so popular because people who work in HR like, I fucking hate it here. Exactly. So like this idea that there is a status quo that's working and should be upheld. I just am like, y'all, why though? Like, why? We got to stop. Got to burn it down. Yeah. I think all HR, I hope all HR people listening, this resonates with them to a certain extent. Because I feel like every single HR person I have talked to recently is like fed up with the way we've always done things. But I think the hardest part is getting the buy-in then from the other leaders you work with, namely like the CEO, the CEO and any founders that you have to deal with. Because I don't think the problem is HR doesn't want to change. I think the problem is other leaders don't actually understand this job with the level of nuance that we do and the impacts it can have on the people, the organization, the leadership, the culture. So I ha- think that's fair. How do you get them to change? Okay, so first of all, I'm going to push back on you with all of the love in my heart 
<laughs> because we're again starting from a place of being responsible for other people's mm. thoughts rather okay. than starting at home. And this is the conversation I had. Look, we've we've been in the future of HR waters for a year. And most of the conversations I have with chief people officers and giant companies are like, yeah, oh, yeah, go talk to them. And I'm like, no, no, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. <laughs> um, because first, I don't think that a lot. And, and again, like, please know, like, I am not, this is not a place where I'm like, you know, we're not here to roast HR people. Like I was one. That's why I do this work because I actually do give a shit. But I don't think that HR folks have necessarily a great model for what to change to. <laughs> so I think the pitch or like when, what I see sometimes is HR leaders trying to carve out the space to do transformation work. And what they want to do is just a slightly newer version of what's already been done. And it's hard to build credibility that way because it's like, why would we want to invest more in something we already know isn't working? So yeah. so for starters, I just think a shared mental model of where we're headed is a really good start. Um, for people who are curious, go to theready.com forward slash F-O-H-R to find your inspo so that you can go start making the case. It's all there. It will help you. That's number one. Number two is figure out where you want to go and then just get the permission for what you need to get there. Who gives a shit if they think it's a good idea? It's not their function. Does the finance person come to you and say, I think we should do budgeting differently? Hibba, what do you think? <laughs> I would fall off my chair and be like, oh, this is a Nike welcome to change. But like, is it a welcome to change? I have the conversation like I'm a I effectively play the CEO role in my company. And I have the conversation once a week where someone comes to me who has subject matter expertise to go, is this a good idea? And I'm like, how would I know? I'm not a CFA. Is it a good idea? Like you're the so my point here is CHROs, CPOs, figure out where you're trying to go. Figure out what you need to get started. Don't go in with a year-long plan and a seven-figure price tag and like a fucking Gantt chart. Nobody wants to see that. Put your PowerPoint slides down. It's not the move. Understand what the outcomes are that you're aiming for and what the first moves are that you want to try and just get enough permission to try something and be left alone until you can show that it's working. Mm. That's it. This is what I do when I go into projects and they're like, but, but how does this scale? I'm like, don't worry about that right now. Let's do something really effective that you can see and that can create momentum before we worry about three-year metrics and outcomes. And so a lot of this work that, that you you all can see if you if you go look at the site that I'm talking about is about how we organize, how we team, new ways of working within HR, sort of moving through a maturity model. But my point is I don't want HR to always be in the business of we need to transform, let's go convince a bunch of people. Yeah. I want HR to be in the business of I want to go from here to here. I will require this much time, these kinds of resources, and this much money. Also, I will be putting down these three priorities until we get there. And if we don't make this change now, we're never going to be able to deliver the strategy of this company later. So what do you guys think? That's the conversation to be having because otherwise it's just more influencing. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just more influencing, which leads yeah. to more influencing, which leads to more like, well, get me more data. Well, who else is doing it? Well, who are you? Like, all of that is just avoidance mechanisms. Don't engage. Yeah. 
I think the the thing that the standing out the most to me is like why I think we've talked about this before, but I, I gave the analogy like no one tells a CFO like, well, why are you building the model that way? But anytime I launch any people initiative, everyone has a thousand comments they want to make. Why do you think that is the nature of our job? Do we welcome yeah. it or is it because our work impacts everybody, even though you would argue budgeting also impacts everyone? I've thought a lot about this because I've certainly had that experience myself in HR. And I think it's a few things. I think one is everybody is an end user directly in a way yep. that you're right about budgeting, but it's not quite the same as if you change performance management and it's like, oh, no, this is really like direct to me. Yep. Everybody thinks that they know. And to a certain extent, HR is the one domain in the building where the execution of it doesn't happen in the function. The execution of HR happens everywhere else. Whereas the execution of marketing doesn't happen in finance. It happens in marketing. So you are naturally structured in such a way that you require a dance partner. If you change comp, it happens at the edge. If you change hiring, it happens at the edge. There's very little within the function. So that becomes a murky dynamic because you're sitting in HR saying, this is where we should go and be, et cetera. But it's the sales force who is feeling that change. Whereas mm -hmm. if the sales force changes their targeting structure, everybody else in the building doesn't feel that change directly. Yep. And so I think that makes people feel like they have a lot more like skin in the game and also a lot more desire to influence than those of us who are like, yeah, marketing, go off. I don't know. <laughs> do whatever I don't care what you're doing with that influencer <laughs> like, marketing campaign like I can't like, I don't know I don't really understand how ConvertKit works knock yourselves yeah. out you know <laughs> I feel that that's actually a really good point I, I should think about that more because I sometimes get really annoyed that like everyone wants to give their opinions on things and I'm like I don't want to sit here and for an hour have to explain to you why we can't do something that way because I know what's going to happen when we do it that way it just yeah. I need to maybe control that on my own and talk to my therapist about that because it like heats me up that I'm like, I don't want to have to explain to you why timing a communication in a certain way must happen this way. Because when we don't, these five things are going to happen because I know they're going to happen. And I think your reaction to that is like really understandable. It's like it's really hard to just sit there and be like, yeah, tell me your neato idea about my job and I'll explain to you why it's wrong. Like, that sucks. The thing that I teach clients to do a lot, which starts out deeply uncomfortable and then people just really can't wait, really dig in, is what we call the advice process. And so the difference between what you're describing and an advice process is I will bring a piece of work or a proposal or whatever to either a group of people or I'll make an open call and say like, you know, whoever is interested in this, feel free to come. <laughs> and I will say, I am looking for X kind of advice. And that advice can be like general reactions, whatever you think. That advice could be like really specific, like wording to make it better. It could be whatever you want. And then my job is to sit and listen to the advice not get into any back and forth about it with the understanding that I will take what's useful and leave what's not. And that is clearly contracted at the beginning. 
So people huh. show up to an advice conversation or meeting knowing that like they might see their idea in the final product and they likely will not. And it gives them a chance to be heard and it gives me a chance to get a lot like to crowdsource a bunch of ideas and information without getting into a debate about what's right. Because that is like a race to the middle. That is a race to compromise. And compromise solution and org design are not interesting. Oh, my God. I'm going to start doing that. I'm going to be like, I it's only great. want advice. I'm not to this no back and forth. I'm here for advice only. The thing that's really cool about advice processes is when people get good at them, because the advisors know that you're not going to respond, they also tend to come from a more generative stance because they're mm. not coming to get their way. They're coming to be helpful. And we're all clear that like I'm doing the work here, so I'm going to take what's useful. But the idea is to make the thing better. And everybody plays that game rather than when you show up to give your opinion and you're trying to give it in such a way that you make sure it gets heard. In this dynamic, everyone knows that they're going to get heard. And then whatever is going to happen is going to happen because of the person who actually does the job. Do you do it verbally or in writing? Both. I do both. Uh. So like I posted something to a channel the other day that was um, like a role description. And I was just like, I was like, I, this is very drafty. I want everything. So if someone was like, we can't afford this. If someone was like, we shouldn't do, I wanted, I wanted everything from like, this person should have these kinds of decision rights to like, this is a metric to like, this is the comp range. Like I was just like open season on advice. So sometimes I'll do it in that way. And sometimes I'll do it in a meeting. And when I do it in a meeting, and this is really important, I do it in a round so every single person takes a turn and I don't respond in between ever. And at the end of the round, I will say which pieces of advice I intend to integrate. And then I will thank everyone for their advice. And then we will leave. Wow. Y'all hiring? Just kidding. So there's no like second round. There's <laughs> well, no, when I go, when I go, you know, like Meg, I'm going to do that thing that you said. And Will, I'm going to do that thing that you said. And, and like, you know. Matt, I'm not going to do that thing because of this reason or whatever, or a bunch of points that I ignore. And then we don't have time where Matt goes, well, what about my thing? There's no second round. It's just one round and we're done. And it really shifts the dynamic from something that feels antagonistic to something that feels quite cooperative. Well, I was going to say, what was the baseline of building the foundation of psychological safety to even be able to do that? Because I'm thinking in environments that I've worked in in the past, that would never fly because it would be potentially two people, three people in the room who I know have different ideas and are going to try to battle each other to get their idea to be heard. So how does yeah. it work if like psychological safety is not already present when you try to do this? The thing is that's funny is I think it requires less psychological safety than how it's usually done. Because how it's usually done is those people come with oppositional opinions anyway. Yes, always. And then you're in the hot seat. And usually what happens is the person in the hot seat goes, okay, why don't I take all of this back and I'll create a new draft and I'll come back to you all. Like but usually what we're not going to do is say in the room, like, yeah, I'm going to do your thing and not your thing. Like that's very rare. So I actually find it takes less psych safety to be like, everyone gets a turn to say their piece and then everyone leaves. Yeah. Then feeling like you can't really win an advice process. You can't. Yeah. 
I love this idea. I'm going to try this. Yeah, it works really well. It works great for boards. Love that. Because then everyone gets a chance. Yeah. Because everybody gets a chance to speak. And a lot of times in advice meetings, I will find the most interesting and useful advice will be from someone who is the farthest removed from the work and the quietest. There will often be someone in the meeting who like seemingly has nothing to do with this thing that I'm bringing who will say something super smart. And I'll be like, holy shit, that completely changed my thinking about this. And the people who are the loudest and have like the strongest agendas say things that I expect them to say. And then like you get like a divergent opinion. And I think that's where better work comes from is hearing those quiet signals and being like, that never would have come out any other way because that person was never going to show up to a traditional meeting and fight. Oh, I love that. I'm like now rethinking all my meetings that feel like fights because I made a joke yeah, yesterday. Sure. I was like, I know we had an argument and the person in the meeting was like, we weren't arguing. And I was like, why is that? My my default is we're arguing because we're having different ideas on how we want to get something done. And maybe I need to reframe how I think about it because it could have just been advice. Yeah. And this is why a lot of times when we, you know, what I was talking before about like the culture emerges from the choices you make in the operations, a lot of times when we're first starting with an organization or even when I'm feeling like something is like tense or like staticky or just moving slow or getting weird inside of the ready, I usually look at meetings first. I'm usually like, if you show me your meeting, I'll tell you what your culture is. Ooh, that's spicy. So I'm like, if you want to change the culture, change the meeting. Yeah, change me. yeah. Don't don't say what the culture is and then go do your meeting. Change the way the meeting is and see what happens in the culture. Um, because when you have an operating rhythm of interactions that are designed for outcomes, like making the best possible product or making the best possible decision or getting the most people's needs met or learning from the past, those are sort of the standard four that are in our operating rhythm then you have a certain kind of culture that comes out of those interactions. Ooh, so look at those meetings. Look at those, because that, that doesn't form all your culture. Your culture is essentially how your employees show up and behave. Yeah. And if they're showing up to meetings, antagonizing each other and like fighting over g- getting their voice to be heard rather than collaborating with each other, what kind of culture do you actually have? Yeah, totally. I once I used to work with a lot of veterans and and some of them were quite senior leaders when they were in the military and And one of my favorites of those guys was a general and said to me once, you can tell anything you need to tell by any group of people by how they communicate and how they make decisions. And he was like, you don't need to know anything else about them. And I always thought about that because I think it's really true. What a full circle moment because we started talking about the communication and how HR shows up and are we in politics or drama? And now we're circling all the way back to our meetings. And so I feel like that's a really, that's a really good takeaway. Look at awesome. the meetings, look at how people make decisions and how they communicate with each other. Um, awesome. This has been amazing. We've touched on so many great things about the role of HR, what makes it so hard, how HR has to evolve or die. You've heard that here first. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I feel like I I'm going to get hate mail. <laughs> no. I do think everyone... Okay. My whole ethos, if I hate it here, is like, we cannot do the thing we've always done. It is not That's working. Right. People are very unhappy at work, and your HR team is very burnt out. We have yeah. the highest job change of any function on LinkedIn. And so it's like HR people are not putting up with it. And I think a lot of people listen to this and 
reach out to people that I bring on this show because they want to change how the way of work has always been done, which is, I know, the Reddy's whole um, ethos. Before we wrap up, what's your one HR hill to die on? It's probably performance management. What's performance? It's always like, just performance stop. management. Just stop doing it. You're making everything worse. Just stop. I love that because that is also how I feel. No, it really is. It Like, like don't make it trust. better. Just yeah. stop doing it. Just stop. Or think of a better way to do it. I think like sure. performance management to an extent needs to happen, but I don't think in the way that we've always done it is safe, effective, or even useful. 100%. And I would add to, to tie our, our takes together. I don't think that you can iterate it from where it is. I think you have to stop what you're doing and start with a blank sheet of paper where you're designing for the outcome that you want. Because what is already there and entrenched is fundamentally broken. And so like you got to start fresh or you'll be constrained and limited in your thinking by what already exists. Yeah. I'll fell off that. Um, okay. Before we wrap up, do you want to do like a two second who you are and what you do? Okay, Rodney, I have loved our conversation today. Actually, I love every conversation we've ever had. You leave me with a lot to think about. I'm going to go back into my own organization and really think about the decisions, how we make them how we communicate with each other. And I'm going to look at our meeting schedule because now I have a lot of thoughts percolating from what you said. How can listeners get in touch with you? How can they find you and reach out to you and get to know you more? Sure. Yeah. So y'all can find me on LinkedIn. I'm generally relatively responsive. You can email at Rodney at the ready.com. If you want to know more about future of HR, you can email FOHR at the ready.com. Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. Your pockets, her podcast is amazing. Please listen. And I just love everything you do. And I'm so deeply inspired, one, by our conversation, but all the work that The Ready does because work has got to change. Thanks, Eva. Back at you. You're the best. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in. Keep up with all the latest HR resources by subscribing on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. And if you love I Hate It Here, tell an HR friend. I'll see you next time.